everybody. Thanks for joining me. Hope your weekend is going well. Give me a thumbs up in the chat if you can hear me okay. Um, so I want to talk about two Russiagate-related developments from this past week, and both of them illustrate how Russiagate has been used to pursue the exact goal that Russians are accused of, which is basically um, interfering in elections and sowing discord and brainwashing people. The first development uh, came in the Hunter Biden laptop incident. We all remember that before the 2020 election, when some reporting came out about the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, these emails showing that Hunter Biden was trading on his family name for business opportunities. Pretty standard Washington corruption. But instead of talking about the content of those emails, that story was censored, uh, particularly some stories in the New York Post, were censored on social media on the fake grounds that this laptop was just simply a Russian disinformation operation. And the basis for that allegation came from a group of former intelligence officials, including James Clapper, John Brennan, and Mike Morrell, who signed a statement saying that the Hunter laptop story has all the earmarks of a Russian information operation. Now, they acknowledge in that statement that they had no evidence for that claim, but of course, the media doesn't care about evidence, and they just took the fact that these former intelligence officials were saying this as sufficient proof to uh, dismiss the story as a Russian operation and ignore the contents of the Hunter email. Well, now we learn something new, which is that this statement that came out uh, was not just based on a fake claim that uh, this laptop came from Russia. This fake claim was generated by the Biden administration, uh, by the Biden campaign itself. And this was disclosed in congressional testimony newly released by Mike Morrell, who organized the letter. He was in the running at the time to be Biden's chief of the CIA. He formerly served as the acting director of the CIA. Uh, and Morrell testified to Congress that he organized this statement at the behest of the Biden campaign. So he was asked this, quote, prior to a call from Antony Blinken, now the Secretary of State, you did not have any intent to write the statement. That's the question. And Blink and Morell answers, I did not. And our, elsewhere in the uh, interview, Morell does say that, you know, they didn't ask me to write this statement. But it's so obvious what happened here. Blinken called Morell, told him about this suspicion that this came from Russia. And then Morell got the message and organized this letter. And he even says, he's asked, what was the intent of the statement? And he says uh, there were two intents. One intent was to share our concern with the American people that the Russians were playing on this issue. And two, it was to help Vice President Biden. And uh, then he's asked, you wanted to help the vice president. Why? And Morrell answers, because I wanted him to win the election. So this is exactly the kind of uh, intent that is often ascribed to Russia. Whenever Russia is accused of interfering, they want to help, for example, Trump win. Well, this is a former intelligence official admitting that he put out a statement that was completely uh, devoid of any basis, in fact, to help Biden win the election. And this means now that in two consecutive presidential elections, we have Democratic campaigns generating fake claims about Russia in order to help their candidate win and to distract from leaked emails that show their corruption. So in 2016, the Clinton campaign, through its contractors, CrowdStrike and Fusion GPS, generated claims about Russian interference and a Trump-Russia conspiracy. And all that was done to distract from the contents of leaked emails showing corruption, not just by Hillary Clinton, but in the Democratic Party leadership. And again, 2020, the same Russiagate playbook. The Biden campaign gets its friends and the CIA 
to generate these fake claims that Russia is behind actual real emails from Hunter Biden's laptop, which he himself um, was responsible for losing because he handed in that laptop to a repair shop who then took it to the FBI. And then when the FBI sat on it, gave it to Rudy Giuliani. Um, so that's two consecutive elections. And of course, two consecutive elections where the media, instead of reporting on the contents of these leaks, hyper-focuses on these baseless claims that all this is a Russian operation. So this is called the Russiagate playbook, and it has worked to a T in two consecutive elections. So, for example, here is Joe Biden during the 2020 debate, uh, the last 2020 debate with Trump, and just a few weeks before, uh, less than two weeks before the 2020 elections. And here's, here's what Joe Biden said. There are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what this he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. They have said that this is has all the care Four, five former heads of the CIA, both parties, say what he's saying is a bunch of garbage. Nobody believes it except the, his and his good friend, Rudy Gianni. You mean the laptop is now another Russia, Russia, Russia hoax? And you that's exactly what, is this that's where exactly you're what this is going. where he's going. The laptop right. is Russia, yes. Russia. So that's Biden, you know, you know, citing these former intelligence officials. What, what he left out was that his campaign had prodded those intelligence officials to say that with no basis whatsoever. And of course, the media went along with this entirely and dismissed the contents of the laptop on the fake basis that Biden cited. Secret emails. A really fishy story. The Post claimed that the emails were found on a laptop computer that was brought to a repair shop in Delaware in the spring of 2019. The FBI is now investigating whether those alleged Hunter Biden emails are actually connected to a larger foreign intelligence operation. They may be related to a foreign intelligence operation. Foreign intelligence operation. Foreign intelligence. Foreign intelligence. Foreign intelligence operation. For all we know, these emails are made up. The information found on the laptop may be part of a Russian disinformation campaign. Part of a Russian uh, disinformation uh, effort. Described by many intelligence experts as having hallmarks. All the hallmark, hallmarks, rather. All the hallmarks of a Russian. A Russian, Russian disinformation. Russian disinformation. Disinformation campaign. This is a classic example of the right-wing media machine. So that was a, a, a compilation of clips, all from CNN and MSNBC. So doing the exact thing they're accusing Russia of, which is spreading disinformation to help a presidential candidate. It just happens to be the Democratic one. Um, and, uh, of course, where is the media reporting on this disclosure from Mike Morrell? From what I've seen, uh, of course, the New York Post picked it up, other conservative sites picked it up, but nothing that I've seen in the, um, you know, establishment media. Um, because this is, again, uh, just a massive interference and propaganda campaign aimed at the American public um, doing exactly what Russia is accused of. It's just classic projection. Meanwhile, another story hap- you know, uh, arose this week, uh, which pertains to Russiagate. So what was, a, what, what, what was one purpose of Russiagate? It was to paint anybody on the right or left who was deemed to be a threat to the national security state and who challenges its prerogatives and its imperatives, like, for example, uh, anyone who calls for diplomacy with Russia or criticizes the proxy war in Ukraine uh, is painted as a Russian asset or a Russian dupe. So this week we saw an indictment of uh, four members of, of black leftist organizations and accusing them of being unregistered Russian agents. And you read the indictment and basically most of the indictment has to do with the content of their speech, which is that they've criticized U.S. foreign policy. In terms of their interactions with Russians, there's a little bit on how they you know, communicated with some Russian nationals and even received some money 
uh, in the thousands of dollars from Russian nationals. But the indictment is basically taking them to task for having views that don't align with the national security state. And it's a really extraordinary document. It, 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 it faults them for saying things like the U.S. is supporting a proxy war in Ukraine. It's blocking diplomacy. And it's helping to arm neo-Nazis, which is all true. That's just a fact. And uh, these people are essentially being indicted for it and facing years in prison. And there is this aspect that they receive money from some Russians for some political activities. But, you know, this is stuff that the U.S. does around the world and not just in the thousands of dollars, but in the tens of millions of dollars. And whenever a foreign government indicts people for acting as foreign agents of the U.S., the U.S. cries foul. So here the U.S. is doing that with some Americans who have had the same views their whole lives, but is doing so to paint them as Russian assets. And that has been totally normalized by the Russiagate playbook, which is basically to paint anyone who dissents from the party line on these vital issues as, as Russian agents. And again, it's interesting to see the media reaction. These are black leftists being targeted. And, you know, establishment media have branded themselves as being pro black lives matter. Well, where, where are they on this? They can't actually cover this case properly because the people bringing the case are the Justice Department, uh, which is weaponized Russiagate to go after dissent. And so because establishment media is so aligned with the national security state, they can't cover this honestly. So the response has been either to parrot what the government says or to just simply fall silent because it's awkward to sort of uh, openly parrot this really old playbook of painting black activists as Russian dupes. I mean, this dates back to the McCarthy era and Dr. King was painted this way. And this is essentially the exact same thing. So that's two examples right here from this week of how Russiagate propaganda have really corrupted our politics and being used for a very cynical end. Uh, okay, let's take some calls. Scott, you are up. Hey, good morning, Aaron. How are you today? Good. Good. Um, <clears throat> last time I was trying to ask you a question and uh, the app kept bugging out on me, so it seems like we have a good connection. Um, that question is, have you um, ever considered uh, uh, trying to get onto a podcast, The John Bachelor Show? Are you familiar with him? I know The John Bachelor Show from uh, when Stephen F. Cohen used to do the weekly episodes with him. Yes. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but other, no, I, no. Katrina, well, Katrina Van Inhoevel has made a few appearances, uh, since, uh, the passing of Stephen. And, um, you know, he, as, as you know, he's a right winger, but he, he has a very open mind. And part of what I was thinking too is like with your book that I know you're really focused on getting done. He is famous for reading the books of everybody that he interviews, right? Like, so if you're, if you, if, if you get your book published and I think he would love to hear about it and, you know, you could even check, uh, you know, Matt Taibbi was on there once years ago, but why? Because John Batchelor read one of his books about the financial collapse, I think, and said, I like this guy. I want to get him on. So I'd highly recommend it. Cause I think you could, I, th I think you're, I think you'll find that his his manner of 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 interrogating others is very simpatico with yours. He's very he's he's never rude, he's never diatribish, but he's very good at interrogating people, but he's always 
He's always gracious and welcoming to people, even those he disagrees with, right? So, and, and I think it would expose your, your, uh, you trying a whole new audience there, perhaps. But yeah. So anyways, that's it. The other thing, just the cute thing, uh, you know, every, every week, it seems like somebody at some point asks you, uh, oh, Aaron, well, you know, what do we got to do? And at that point, I always hear the, you know, that old song by the, the Moody Blues. I'm, I'm just a singer in a rock and roll band, but it's like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm just a reporter who writes and tells the truth, you know, and, and, and I get it. And, and I, I would say to those people who are always asking that question of you, you know, tell other, talk to other people about this stuff and, and help, you know, that, that old term from the sixties, consciousness raising, help people become conscious and aware of how much they're being lied to by every single media outlet that has a 24 hour news cycle. Right. And, yeah. and, and it just, but just not do it in a confrontational way because it, it's really weird to watch somebody who really become aware of it, but you got to do it. You got to get their trust. And I'm just, I'm always trying to do that with people on the left and the right all the time. So thanks. Thanks yeah. for doing what you do. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for the tips. Okay. All right. Hello, Matt. Hey, what's up, Aaron? How you doing there today? How's it going? I'm good. Doing good. I'm doing good. Also, by the way, man, you killed it on the Jimmy George show this week. Always love seeing your host, but, um, more so it's not a comment, more so of a question. Um, do you think people uh, possibly messed up all those that were saying uh, vote for Joe Biden to be the, uh, you know, um, you know, you got to vote for Joe Biden to stop all of the fascism or this and that. And it seems like Joe Biden has kicked it up uh, plenty of notches more so than Trump as far as, you know, arresting, um, arresting citizens or whatnot on BS claims, as you stated, uh, things of that nature. And, you know, everybody's, oh, you got to do harm control, harm control. And to me, it just seems like the Dems do more damage when they're in office than it does with Republicans as far as domestic goes. How do you feel about that? You know, um, I was one of those people who said vote for Biden uh, to, you know, as the lesser of two evils, because I thought at least Biden would return to the Iran nuclear deal and would uh, sign New START, like the last treaty that limits the nuclear weapons stockpiles of the U.S. Uh, and Russia. Biden did. Do, Biden did do New Start. Um, tr the Trump administration was going to let New Start expire, uh, which to me was just so scary because that's the last treaty left that limits the stockpiles of the U.S. from Russia. And it's in itself, it's, it's not even an adequate. It's really inadequate, but at least it's something. And Trump, uh, had, because Trump's cabinet was full of neocons, they were going to let it expire. So, I, so Biden did renew that. But on the Iran nuclear deal. I stu I was wrong. He let he he did you know I thought he would easily re return to not easily but I thought he would return to the deal that his own administration under Obama signed but he didn't correct correct they, they, yeah. they, they, they took the Trump position which was just so I, so I was wrong on that because and of course we also got this war in in uh, Ukraine which I can't say I don't know if Trump would have let that happen I mean Trump's policies definitely contributed to it because Trump sent weapons to Ukraine that Obama wouldn't send. He also killed the INF Treaty, which is another arms control treaty. Um, and that allows the U.S. to build up missiles threatening Russia. So, And that was a ma major factor. But when push came to shove, if Trump had the option of 
accepting Russia's offers to avoid an invasion, would he have taken that over Biden? I mean, it's a, I mean, we don't know now, but certainly you can't really get much worse than Biden on this topic. So, um, but yeah, I never bought into the whole thing about fascist, you know, we have to stop fascism at home because I don't see much of a difference there at all between the parties. And I do think, I mean, domestically, I mean, it's tough because on, on social welfare issues like Medicaid, uh, Democrats, I think, are are better. But uh, as you as you point out, it doesn't really matter because the same policies happen anyway. Right. So, um, so overall, overall, yeah, I think people like myself who said that Biden was the would cause less harm. I, I, I mean, for speaking for myself, I was wrong on that. No, oh, okay, definitely. No, it was just a question I was throwing out there because, uh, you know, um, I'm in Nevada here, so, like, there's the Libertarian Party or whatnot, so I always try to vote third party there just because, you know, I, like I said, I see the I, I see what the Dems do when they're in office as far as, um, you know, expanding the police. They they can get away with a lot more than the Republicans um, domestically, you know, and it just seems like, I don't know, now they're going internationally getting away with things that Republicans <laughs> couldn't do, you it's know. It's so true. It's- when when Trump put kids in cages, everybody revolted. When when Democrats do it, everyone just ignores it. So you're right, and it's true. Like, could a on foreign policy too? Like, could a Republican have gotten away with Libya and Syria? Like, um, maybe Democrats would have opposed that just simply because it's a it's a Republican in office. I don't know, but these are these are questions I've definitely started grappling with, seeing how just horrible Biden has been, and the people around him are just terrible. So I think these are all fair questions. Definitely. And I was going to say uh, one last question. Um, I, would, I believe it was BuzzFeed or um, Breitbart, Breitbart or whatnot. One of the news uh, media organizations, they shut down, fired everyone or whatnot. Um, do you think more organi- uh, news organizations are going to possibly follow the same uh, there? Like, do you think that's, uh, you know, like the canary in the coal mine as far as uh, mainstream media goes or, you know, uh, uh, I do. I, a lot? Yeah, I do. I do. I, it was BuzzFeed News that shut down. Oh, and BuzzFeed. I mean, the, pro- the problem with all these digital sites is they're all kind of, it's like, it's a fake industry because they don't generate much revenue. They lose money. And why are they there? They're just there because they have some wealthy backers who have an interest in like the prestige of having a brand or, ha- you know, have an interest in having another brand that parrots the establishment line. Right, right. All these sites kind of all these sites kind of do the exact same thing. They all parrot the establishment line on on the key issues. They don't do much original journalism. They all bought all these sites bought into RussiaGate, and that you know that's hurt their credibility. I think with people who think independently, and there's just you know there's only so many people who want to read the exact same establishment line that doesn't question anything. And when you have so many sites doing that, like what's the point in having them? You, 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 like we already have CNN, MSNBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, like. The Huffington Post, like, how many sites can do the exact same thing of just being stenographers for power? So eventually, something had to give. And so I'm not surprised at all that BuzzFeed collapsed. And, um, you know, obviously, in every outlet, you have good reporters who do good stuff. But overall, I mean, BuzzFeed, you know, was so bad on Russiagate. And has gone after, uh, you know, friends of mine like Max Blumenthal smearing him and having to make really substantial corrections to their articles about him. And so I'm, I'm not surprised that people who are so dishonest uh, collapse. And I do think we can expect more of that. 
Okay, and then uh, one last question here before, uh, before I let you go. I don't want to hold you up too long. But uh, RFK Jr., man, how are you feeling? Uh, yeah, how, how do you feel about him? Because he, he's saying all the right well, things, and I do feel like he has a, a little more um, fortitude than Bernie and uh, the rest of those people there. Yeah. You know, so, but then he's running in the Democrat Party, so I'm not, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Yeah, well, he's a Democrat. I mean, like his family, I mean, that's like blue blood Democrat, right? So true, true. Um, I think he just feels very compelled to be a part of that legacy. And, you know, he, he, he maybe doesn't realize how different the Democrat, how, how the Democratic Party has really changed, you know, has shifted over to the right. Or maybe he just, he just has the, he's just trying to change it for the better. But regardless, yeah, I mean, I listened to his speech and I, a lot of what he said, I totally agree with. He talked about ending the war state. He talked about the connection between all these wars abroad and deprivation at home. And I mean, so clear. And I, of course, um, it was great to see that in the Democratic field. And uh, I hope he makes the debate stage. Right. And, uh, well, with that, you've seen the Democrats also said that they will be holding no primary debates. Um, they just recently came out with that. So. <laughs> oh, really? no, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? I'll, I'll I'll link the article into the uh, chat here, but yeah. So they uh, linked. Uh, I mean, they just recently came out. No primary debates or whatnot. So we'll see how that turns out. Are Are you sure it's maybe that they're not like reducing the number of debates? But because like having no debates at all, I think is I, that's crazy if they can get away with that. Um, but uh, yeah, I share the link you have and yes, sir. Um, I'll check it out. All right, all right. thank you for the call. Later. Hello, Will. Hello. Um, I'm so, I've been on a few weeks in a row. I'm sorry, but I, I, I had to mention, after you mentioned the prosecution of those people, um, I can't remember the name of the party that they were part of, but um, do you remember in Georgia, um, the country, in the, in the Caucasus, what happened? The foreign agent bill. Um, hey, one more time. Do you know what happened in the caucuses in Georgia with the foreign agent bill? I do. Uh, yeah, I know that there were some, <laughs> there were some protests recently. And yes. I, I think some of the people involved were, were linked to the National Endowment for Democracy. Absolutely. Yeah, okay, yeah. And they condemned this because oh, they okay. said, having to register your political affiliations if you're yeah. not like a lobbyist entity, that is undemocratic and it, and it betrays um, the Georgian people. That is what they said. And, and now we're seeing them use their foreign agent bill because, um, uh, as I understand it, the Georgian foreign agent bill was very similar to the U.S. foreign agents um, bill but with some yeah. key differences. Um, there were, but, but, like, it was worded very similarly. So this is like... <laughs> They're, they're charging people onto something that they were condemning just, what, like a month ago? Exactly. It, and, and the difference is, like, in the case of the National Endowment for Democracy, they have millions of dollars. In the case of these activists here in the U.S., they get, you know, thousands of dollars to go on speaking tours, and, and, are not, and they're not there to, like, overthrow the government, whereas when the U.S. does it, they're there to launch coups. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's like... Have a real impact. Yeah. And the National Endowment for Democracy, this is like hundreds of thousands of dollars. These guys are like a hundreds of few thousand dollars. And like I, there is nothing I would bet to say that these people would be exactly the same right now. Yep. Not they talked to Russian people yep. or gotten money from Russian nationals. But yep. that's all I have to say. Thank you, Aaron. Thank um, you. Thank you, Will.
Hello, for what? Yeah, hi, thank you, Aaron. I'm a big fan of your work. I appreciate you letting me talk. Uh, I want to ask you, Aaron, a question regarding the um, situation in Pakistan, because I, I'm seeing zero coverage here in the U.S. I know it has a lot of implications, being it's a nuclear-armed state with one of the, you know, in the top five nuclear weapons uh, in the world. And, uh, you know, the... The, what's going on there, and you know, may know more than I do, is obviously that what I'm hearing is journalists have been murdered. A very famous Arsha Sharif was murdered. Uh, people are being left picked up left and right. There was this whole issue of um, uh, Biden's uh, South Asian uh, secretary, Mr. Lee, uh, I forgot his name. He had uh, written a letter to the uh, then, um, uh, I believe uh, it was a Pakistan diplomat or ambassador, regarding, you know, the uh, that Imran Khan needs to be removed. Obviously, it's been removed. But what is the latest that you know of or are aware of? Because I, I do see that it's playing part of the, inter, you know, the international, uh, I feel, um, uh, big game, as they call that's it, that, that's happening. Thank you. Yeah. You want some more? You killed your cereal that fast? Okay. What cereal was it? Go get your bowl. Hello? Why you didn't put it in the seat? Yeah, okay. Hey. So listen, the app is glitching right now, so the previous caller is still on. Will, if you can hear this, you are still on because of a glitch you in the like app. You don't like Captain Crunchy? Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to have to... Y'all some weird kids, boy. I'm going to have to... Let's see here. I don't think I was, there was a cereal I didn't like when I was a kid. Hey, you got some in the oven? Oh, no, okay. no. Okay, I'm going to try to fix this. Just give me a second. Here we go. Um, so, listen. Um, what I'm going to do is... Okay. I Okay, I think I can fix it there. So, I had to ban, I had to ban that user, Matt. So, if, if you're hearing this back, Matt... I, I'm not meaning to ban you, actually. I just need to do that to get you off the call. So I'm going to do try that and see if that works. Okay, I think that worked. And then I will unban Matt after this. Okay, so in answer to your question, and uh, I had to kick you out of the chat, too, to try to fix it. So I don't – I haven't followed the latest in, in Pakistan at all. I, the person I follow on this is Junaid Ahmad, who is a professor, and he's been writing a lot about, you know, the coup against the, how, how how Imran Khan was – um, overthrown, and that was backed by the U.S. And the protests in support of him are just massive. And um, but otherwise, I, I just I don't I can't I, I haven't been following it. I just turned to to Junaid Ahmad for my information, and I, I haven't seen the latest. So I'm sorry, I, I can't give you an answer to your question. But I will look into it when I can. Okay, Ruben. Hello, Ruben. Um, hi, um, this is like my second time calling. Um, anyways, um, thank you so very much. Um, I have like an interesting um, international news update because I follow European, specifically German news, because um, I am part German. Um, since you guys are talking about what well, says Russia Gate, um, the the corporate press in Germany are some are planting a their version of, of Russian gate. Um, 
into the the left party, the uh, Linka Partei, and um, they're trying to scare the German public that Russia is trying to like um, have the left party and the far right party in talks for um, for I mean to bring upon this like Russian type of like situation, which is kind of odd because that's not true. Because um, I read local um, newspapers in like small little um, cities in Germany. Yeah. So basically, the Linka Partei is not a part of the Olaf Scholz coalition. That uh -huh. is the Grüne Partei, and that's um, FDP. And they are right now the the very pro-war mongers in in Germany. And the chairwoman Janina Wislan, who is the chairwoman of the Linka Partei, has been more outspoken, and she has been having some interesting talks with the IFD. Um, before this whole Russian gate um, story plant or cover up, so the so the corporate press in Germany are scaring your average day German, saying that these two parties are in cahoots with Russia, but in, but in fact they are very more they're, they're pro I mean they're anti-war and they want to have an open investigation of who who fucked him over with, with, with Nord Stream and says Olaf Scholz is not talking a lot about that. Um, what are your, your thoughts about this, um, about this, this left and far right, um, you know, like, I thought it's friendship, odd, yes. like odd friendship, just yeah. like here, like here in the U S cause I know Tucker Carlson covered, um, the three black socialist groups that um, that are being targeted. So now you're having here in the U.S. the same thing. So like, what are um, what is yeah. your opinion on that? Because I'm because it's fascinating what's well, so, going on. So I don't know if you saw this article, and I'll post a link to it. It was in the Washington Post this week, and it's about the story. And it says exclusive: Kremlin tries to build anti-war coalition in Germany. Documents show marrying mm -hmm. Germany's far right and far left is a Kremlin goal, according to a trove of Russian documents reviewed by the Washington Post. So mm. they're now using the Discord leaks to now push this claim to discredit yes, yes, the anti-war movement uh -huh. in, um, in in Germany, as if all this is basically like like, like a Kremlin plot to bring anti-war forces on the left and right together. Um, it's uh, it's pretty it, it's amazing. <laughs> it's so it's, it's inevitable, right? It's the same Russiagate playbook we've been talking about. Um, yeah, exactly. And then I've been having talks with like older German family members who are very much pro-Ukraine and they, they're not seeing it in a different lens. And when I said, hey, you know what? That's not true. Like, Olaf yeah. Schultz is not, it's not our it's not our good friend anymore. He sold us out. And he, like, even for me, because um, I used to be a part of um, the Gunna Partei, here, like here in the U.S., I'm like a supporter, but since I'm, I don't live in Germany, because of other stuff, so I live here a lot more, I, I, I still support them, but every Ever since they they okayed the Leopard 2 tanks, I was like, I can't do this sure, anymore. Yeah. And I've had so many conversations with older Germans, and they don't understand that this is Russiagate. But they see that Russiagate narrative in the U.S., but they can't see, but they can't bear themselves to see it happening in our motherland, in Germany. So, yep. yeah, I, I I heard that Saturday, and my uh, my aunts and uncles got so pissed off at me. I'm like. 
no, what's going on is that the left and the right are having talks about anti-war, genuine talks about anti-war. Yeah. And to the point where, where, like, my aunt called me, like, a Russian sympathizer. I'm like, I'm not sympathizing with Russia. Yes, they illegally invaded. But, like, this is, they, um, they well, they were, like, they invaded because the U.S. kept poking them, kept poking them, and kept, you know, going, like, like on their border so like yeah it, yep. it was really interesting when i saw this in the, the deutsche vela and the Zeit saturday like California. it's the same it, it it's the same playbook you know in across the continent you know like like across both continents america mm-hmm. and, and europe uh anything that challenges the national security state when it comes to this cold war with russia everything is just a russian plot so here you have now these protesters in Germany, thousands of them, that have come mm-hmm. out against the proxy war. All that is it's, it's it's furthering a Russian goal. Just as you know, talking about the Hunter Biden laptop, that's a Russian goal. Any anything deemed to be a threat is just ascribed to Russia, and it's very effective, as we can see. You know, with our our friends and loved ones, a lot of people have been swayed by it because that's that's the message they've been uh, given incessantly, and that's how propaganda works, and it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Thanks for. Sorry, Mamba, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for the call. Appreciate it. Joshua. Oh, by the way, I shared a link to that Washington Post article in the chat. I'll do it again in case anyone missed it. I love how Colin makes you go through different steps every week in order to unplug and actually have a microphone. Um, it's not infuriating at all, um, but it's less infuriating than our foreign policy. Well, all of, the, all of our policies at this point are shit. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to say in regards to anti-war in uh, Germany, uh, well, actually to all the other countries, like that's the real Me Too movement is Me Too, Me Too Germany and Me Too France. Like we should be riding like those two. Like coming into Black Rock offices and burning shit down, like that's that's kind of where it's at in regards to a real people's and labor movement of uh, the disenfranchised. But I just don't know if we have those kind of cojones here. It's it's really frustrating. But we do talk, and I'm back here talking. So um, anyway, uh, I guess you know in regard, I did some domestic violence counseling, and I really feel like that is kind of what we are at this point. And we're just like, hey, we're surviving. They don't drink and hit us too. Much, so we should stick around home more. We just can't afford to have Stockholm syndrome because none of us are hearse, right? Um, and uh, not to state the obvious, but this is the alt right playbook. Like, they're just like, hey, if you beat them hard enough, they'll work harder. If you feed them too much, they don't like to work. And, you know, it's not like we've done anything to create blowback around the world. So all of the immigrants and such that's someone else's problem uh we didn't do anything to cause that so um i just want to talk a little bit about harm reduction and as we talk about these two potential well all of the potential candidates right now are pretty pathetic um so uh but we have a couple of new entrants to the stage that people are pushing uh, one being Marianne Williamson, who is absolute shit on apartheid and foreign policy. So that's great. But we, ah, lesser of two weevils, maybe she'll turn it around in her old age because that happens all the time. And then RFK Jr., who's a blue blood. Like we need somebody that reeks of privilege more in that office. I mean, 
maybe he didn't get a $250,000 a year allowance when he was 13, like whatever that orange guy is that's still hanging around thinking he's relevant. Um, but I just have tried to figure out how do we end up thinking the electoral politics and or these two parties or the options they're putting in front of us are palatable. Uh, what is electoral politics working for us at a national level and when has it when was the last time um, and they're just out of touch with the masses the poor and the global south so i do have a question here aaron i'd like you to weigh in on the potential candidates that are whining about not getting platformed enough because they think they're real candidates like marianne williamson or rfk jr well i I mean, I like a lot of what RFK Jr. says, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm biased in that respect, and I think he should have uh, the right to speak. And, you know, Marianne Williamson, I, I agree with your critiques of her foreign policy views, which I find really unfortunate. And I think they go against a lot of the principles that she actually espouses. You know, she, she, she supports Julian Assange, for example, but yet has fallen for a lot of the propaganda that Julian Assange exposes. But regardless, look, I, you know, I, I think they should be heard because they're running. Uh, and, and I hope they're heard. I, um, and of course, you know, I don't think the Democratic Party is like a vehicle for change and is, has any possibility of being redeemed. But yet, I think people running in the party, I, 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 to me, it's better than nothing. Otherwise, there's no challenge at all. And, you know, back in, back in 2020, Tulsi Gabbard, when she ran for president, she said some important things on the debate stage and reached a lot of people and, you know, warned actually about the new Cold War and how dangerous it was. And she was proven correct. And so I don't think it's necessary. I'm, you know, I'm not going to critique people for, for running, uh, even if I don't think that the party they're running in is, can be saved. But what is the bar for correctness? Like how many times do the broken clocks need to be correct per day for us to be like, oh, well, they're better than the alternative? Well, because- but, but the thing is, the, the question is, you know, to answer the question, are they better than the alternative? Either they're better or they're not. And I look at someone like RFK, and I hear what he says, and I, you know, I'm sure the things that I don't agree with uh, him on. But when I hear him criticizing the war state and t- talking about closing military bases, I mean, how? I mean, I agree with that, and I'm, I'm not going to just dismiss him based on who his family is and and, and what party he's running in. Um, thank you for the call, Joshua, uh, Alex. Hey, Matt, can you hear me, okay? Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, I just want to comment on, uh, as a general picture, but uh, Russiagate and Ukraine, uh, I do have some experience in both. I spent about 20 years in uh, Russia and Ukraine. I was born in Ukraine. Uh, both of my parents are Russians. Uh, a lot of the stuff gets lost in translation is what I notice. And that, that was... Uh, with the Russia Gate, like Trump never, uh, sorry, Putin never called Trump bright, for example. It was not even a compliment. Uh, another thing is, uh, I notice a lot of videos that uh, are being posted by Grayson and sometimes they're mistranslated. So I was just wondering what generally sources that you approach when you uh, do your reporting on Ukraine and Russia. If you read what I write, uh, almost all my sources are Western, either like Western outlets, 
that sometimes right. you know, let the truth come out about what's going on, like buried in the bottom of articles. Uh, and uh, I think admit that this is, you know, in their own words, that this is a proxy war. That, that's what my first thing is. And in terms of, you know, <clears throat> Ukraine-specific sources, right. um, I, you know, I've relied on people like Nikolai Petro, and uh, there's a uh, a new book out by two Western scholars. Uh, what's it called? Um, just one second. But I've been reading that it's um, uh, Ukraine's unnamed war. Uh, that's it's by two. Uh, it's by Dominique Arell and Jesse Driscoll. Nikolai Petro has a great book called The Tragedy of Ukraine, and all those books have access to Ukrainian sources, which I, you know, which I then right. rely on. So, uh, so, so those are my sources. Okay. Uh, yeah, some things that jump at me, like there is some really basic stuff, like uh, there were claims, uh, both by Grace and yourself, in one of your articles, that uh, Eastern Ukraine is majority ethnic Russian. Where did that come from? Because that's not true. You can look up the census. I don't know. When I said that East Ukraine's majority ethnic Russian, what I've said is there's a there's a, a there's a large amount of people who consider themselves to be ethnic Russian, or who speak Russian, who um, who who rejected the coup government of 2014. Um, uh, and and uh, that's and, fair. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. And and that, and so my point, I think, in talking about Eastern Ukraine in that context is that right. this, that they were not just this wasn't like like you can't describe this as merely a Russian invasion that there was local agency in resisting the, the government of twenty fourteen. See, that's where uh, the picture changed for me when I was kind of looking at it. Uh, just to be fair, I live in Canada now. I've been living here for uh, almost twenty years, uh, but I've been going back and forth. So I didn't and have. Obviously, friends and family, both Ukraine and Russia, so kind of get the picture from both sides. Always is difficult because everybody kind of has a different opinion on it. And they've been fed one propaganda on, uh, and the other on the other side, so that's hasn't been easy. Uh, but the, uh, that thing, the coup, and uh, the, there was a transition from coup to the hot war. Yeah. Right, there were these local um, kind of uh, like thinking in Odessa, which uh, you know there was one group of radicals on one side and another group on the other side. Uh, there was this, uh, yes, people died, but it never escalated into, into the war, right? Yeah, well, and in Odessa, sorry, in Odessa, dozens of people were burned alive. And yeah, it's, it's true that that Odessa there wasn't a revolt there like there was in the Donbas. But events like what happened in Odessa, I think, did help galvanize the revolt. And things like, you know, the, like, things like the first vote of the post-coup government to essentially right. ban Russian as a, as a second language, that had an impact. And it made people feel as if their, their Absolutely. identity was... It, so it, it had a, an impact on my, my, myself as well as an ethnic Russian, obviously. Okay. So, uh, so what do you think but, I'm missing? Like, like what, what, I, what, I, well, what I don't I, get is... That, yeah. Right. So uh, I, th I think, and that was a lot of uh, what I gathered was through just uh, anecdotes from people I know who live there. Uh, it's also, uh, there was a good series actually, which had the most footage from 2014 called uh, Russian Roulette on Vice News. There was one guy who interviewed pretty much like everybody on the other side. He was embedded with all these different battalions, like Azov and like uh, Donetsk Battalion. 
whatever it's called. So that one I would really recommend to anyone who's looking to kind of see what happened in 2014. Uh, what changed it for me was actually that transition which is uh, to actual escalated military conflict, which happened uh, with the uh, takeover of Slav Slavansk. Do you know that city? You're familiar with that? Uh, in Crimea? Uh, no, that's Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and that was, uh, there was this guy, Girkin, who, uh, who is an FSB officer, and he took over that small town. And that's kind of when things started uh, escalating. So, okay, so yeah, like, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I know you're talking about it. So listen, in this book I mentioned, Ukraine's Unnamed War, right. uh, before the Russian invasion of 2022, it's by Dominique Arell and Jesse Driscoll. These are two Western scholars, I think with the University of Ottawa and University of San Diego. Okay. They're, they're, uh, they're harsh critics of Russia. They say that Putin's claims about genocide in the Donbass are ridiculous. They think the invasion is unprovoked. But they do, I think, lay out um, a narrative that goes against a lot of what the establishment narrative is here. And ab about that Russian officer you mentioned, what they yeah. argue is that he was, he was freelancing, that he was not actually acting at the behest of the Kremlin and that, and that, um, and that he was, you know, that, the, that like, the, they argue that Russia really only intervened in, you know, in August of 2014. Well after there was already a lot of uh, shelling and attacks on the Donbass population, and Russia, they said, intervened then. That that's when their first intervention. That's, first intervention. that's not when the Ukrainian army uh, got in there. Like there were a few like these battalions, which did commit uh, war crimes, by the way, as well. Yes, yes. Which the, which the, the DNR Lenar did as well. I'm just looking. Uh, like it's you know it's hard to kind of sort. Like I understand difficult that you guys are facing, especially if you're not. Uh, speaking language. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, uh, to sort it out, but like, I, I was <laughs> trying my best to look at uh, as much kind of unredacted uh, footage as I could. And one thing that jumped at me was uh, when Girkin's group was taking over that town and they were talking like, yeah, we're locals and, and, and I hear people speak and they, uh, you know, you can tell the accent is not, like Russians in Ukraine, they have a specific accent that they talk in Eastern Ukraine. Yeah. Like you can make out. So I'm hearing, uh, I'm hearing them speak, and they speak with, like Russians from Russia, you know. So that, that's kind of what jumped at me. And uh, then they, the footage started coming out around that same time. Uh, yeah, the weapons being smuggled over the, over the border uh, in, in the Donetsk and Gansk regions. Yes, listen. So listen, I, I feel listen, that listen. escalation came from the Russian side at that point. That's okay, where well, the war started. That's, so that's where, that's where we'll yeah. disagree, because I think the escalation that, Okay. I think the escalation begins with a coup that overthrows a government that was elected and that a majority of people in hold on a second, hold on a second. A majority okay, of people, finish, yes, a, a majority of people in the East did support. And that coup, coupled with the with the post coup government's first serious law being passed to essentially criminalize the Russian language, that had that had an impact. And then the battalions oh, and oh, so, it didn't and, it didn't and that, come on, come on, man. So first, all that, first of all that second, law is, is gone. Oh, okay, yes, yes. Yeah. If, if you know the region, that that the passage of that law, even though it was later repealed, had a major psychological impact on people, and it scared people. Yes. And coupled uh -huh. with the fact, coupled with the fact that you have people from uh, right sector uh, getting senior cabinet positions in the new coup government, uh, and who are fascists, they are. That had an impact. And, uh, and, 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 yeah, and so, yeah, so, okay. so all I'm saying is yes. Russia did intervene 
in eastern Ukraine. Russia smuggled in weapons. Russia did send in forces. But Russia's major armed intervention came in August 2014, which is well after all this starts. And, and regardless, the rebel my main point is that the rebellion was not just a Russian creation and proxy. This was a local rebellion with people, not, and not, not everywhere, but in these two particular regions um, of Donetsk and Luhansk. That was a local rebellion. That's my point. Uh, Do you disagree with that? I, I was just, yes. And the, one of the major reasons I did, well, first of all, I kind of gave the picture that I got uh, based on those videos and uh, Gherkin. And, uh, but the actual head of uh, DNR, Donetsk People's Republic, People's Republic, at the time, Gubarev, he is on record stating that Gherkin actually was responsible for turning this into an actual war. He said that uh, most likely it would have just uh, dissipated just like uh, the thing in Odessa if it wasn't for his intervention for Russia's support. That, that's an actual head of the DNR. Okay, but then you know what? Then I can, in that book I mentioned, there's a quote from some Ukrainian, some, some senior Ukrainian officer or something who actually blames uh, a battalion leader for starting the war by killing some, some, uh, some Donbass militants at a checkpoint. So look, I mean, we can go back and forth with this stuff. My main point, yeah. my main point is that this rebellion had local support; that it wasn't just a Russian operation and a, Ru- and a Russian proxy. That actually, this was, and, and I don't know the majority. You know, like I think the polls showed that the majority of people did not want to separate from Ukraine; they wanted to stay inside Ukraine. That's um, correct. Yeah, but that what I'm saying is there was a local indigenous rebellion against the coup government, and to dismiss them as a Russian proxy army, I think, is not factual. Uh, well, like I said, I'm, uh, my opinion is based on the words of the people themselves uh, who were in charge there. They also admitted that Russian generals were behind those uh, uh, battalions. They were actually issuing orders. Uh, the head of uh, uh, another head of uh, Zakharchenko, which was he was killed since then, but he was leading uh, the rebellion, sort of there. Uh, he also said there were thousands of Russian regular army soldiers in Donbass at that time. Before August already, 2014. 2014. Before August 2014. Uh, I can't. I can't give you the exact date. I, I know that, said that like, Russia definitely. Russia definitely, Russia definitely intervened in August 2014 and lied about it. Uh, you know, sent it like never admitted that his troops were there, and so maybe at that. But I'm saying in the period before that, like the coup was in February 2014, fighting breaks right. out shortly afterwards. And there's a period there where uh, I'm saying it's locals and it's also, and this never gets talked about, there was a lot of defections from the Ukrainian military. That's why they had to rely on uh, militant forces like Azov, is because a lot of people left the Ukrainian military because they didn't want to fire on their own people. Uh, Ukrainian army was in shambles at that time. Yeah, what was, I'm saying is uh, but there, it's, yeah. a fact, it's a fact there was a lot of defections over to the uh, Donbass. Defect- yeah, uh, defections were... Yes. Yes, the factions like, were mostly, mostly in Crimea. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure the extent of it in Donbass, but yes, the, the, that's a fact. And that made, so, I, so, so what I'm saying, and that speaks to my point, that the insurgency had local support. Listen, we, we can go on okay. with and, and I encourage yeah. you to can come I, can, back next time. And also, email me sure. the statements you referenced. I'd like to see them. Um, and I can email sure. you what I have uh, uh, you know, to respond to that. Go uh, ahead. Where, yeah. Can you drop your email? Sorry. My email? 
It's, it's yeah. Aaron Mate at ProtonMail.com. It's in my Twitter bio. Okay, gotcha. It's in my Twitter page. It's there. Okay, right. thanks for the call. All right, thanks. Take care. Okay, neoliberal tears. Hey, Bestie. Um, happy Sunday. Um, so I know everyone's giving you props for the Jimmy Dore hosting and, you know, doing the trifecta of useful idiots. And But I really wanted to shout out the Gray Zone live streams because I was late to them, didn't realize they were happening. And I, I really love the chemistry between you and Max. Um, it's like, uh, it's really enjoyable. Um, <clears throat> and I also um, checked out... Uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, Max was referencing he was on RFK Jr.'s podcast talking about Ukraine. Um, so I checked that out and I put it in the chat and it shocked me, honestly, how knowledgeable RFK Jr. sounded like about Ukraine. You know, when you ask Marianne, it's kind of like she, it's like a deer in the headlights. You know, it's like, how do I triangulate the position that I think would make Rachel Maddow happy, but wouldn't make the leftists too angry at me? And, RFK Jr., seriously, he sounded in, like uh, knowledgeable about it, you know, and he, even talking to people like Max and Whitney Webb, um, I think, honestly, like, I can't help but get excited about RFK. And I hate the Democratic Party. I hate it. I hate it. But like, I even said it like someone was asked, you know, like months, months ago, I was on another call-in show and I was like, I, I was like, you know, I was they were like getting angry, like, why, why aren't people excited about Marianne? Why aren't the leftists just wrangling around her? And I'm like, and, and literally what I said was, she could have had a speech where she said, I'm running to abolish the CIA. I'm running to abolish, like, you know, to, to literally go balls to the wall. Okay. And she didn't. She doesn't. She's, she even didn't agree that Biden was privatizing Medicare. She was like, oh, there's no evidence of that. The Republicans, like, what are you doing? Like, it's just, that's why I think I understand that Marianne is a nice person. And I'll keep saying I'm, I'm Jewish, I'm from Israel, and I completely understand that she, uh, you know, has networked and has cultivated relationships with journalists since 2020. And people feel very apprehensive about, um, you know, criticizing her position sometimes. But like, at a certain, like, the, if, if you're asking yourself why the left didn't get behind her, it's not because of sexism. It's because she's out of step, out of step with where people are. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm really grateful that someone of RFK's, uh, stature and, you know, is willing to say the uncomfortable things like Whitney Webb and stuff. And, you know, and also if you're, so I get that, you know, Marianne, like, you know, people have tried to talk to her, right? About like apartheid Israel, like the best people, like you, Katie, I, I get it, but like, at a certain point, people shouldn't, you shouldn't have to convince people that war is bad or that the Ukraine, uh, war should, uh, should, we should come to a peaceful negotiation right away. Trump is running to the left of Marianne. He's saying, let's give them a peace agreement in 24 hours. I'll do it. You know, so it's, it's kind of like at a certain point, I think you don't deserve to win if you keep ignoring your own base. I, I totally agree with you. I, but, my problem here is I do like Marianne personally. I think she's a nice person and I, what her intention is. And I just think she's been swayed by some very powerful propaganda that a lot of people have fallen into. But I agree with you. I agree with your critique. I, I just want to, and, and I, but I also wanted to like say that the stakes are really, I'm Israel, okay? And right now there are Jewish protesters 
um, saying like, you know, uh, like with putting up signs in blue and white that say apartheid is not democracy. Apartheid is not democracy. People are riling up in the streets and she's out here from thousands of miles away saying that there should be a Jewish supremacist state. So why? Why? So, so, so she could summer there twice a year and talk about how a Jewish political, like she wants to enforce a Jewish political majority in the country instead of giving everybody equal rights. And I, I, I have no tolerance for it. I don't care how nice somebody is. If my own mother ran for president, I, I would be against it. I, I totally got it. And I agree with you. Uh, I just have to, you know, it's, it's hard for me because I, you know, I've, I've come in a contact oh, with Marianne and, and, and I think she's a nice person. So I just have to acknowledge that when I criticize her. But I, but I totally agree with the substance of your critique. Uh, thank you for the call. Good to hear from you. And I apologize. Um, I'm not going to have time to get to everybody in the queue, but I'll get to as many as I can. David, go ahead. Hi, Aaron. Can you hear me? Stuff. I can hardly hear you. Uh, my name is David Brown, and the reason I'm calling is about the uh, the housing industry running Sacramento here in California. And since you've been on the Jimmy Dore show, have you heard anything about this since you're out here? About that? Uh, no, not really. So what it is, is that the, uh, the state senator, Scott Weiner from San Francisco, has taken the most money from uh, the housing industry. They've come up with over 100 plus bills. Uh, and only two have dealt with affordability, but the idea is to come up with affordability housing. Uh, they are essentially uh, demanding that the cities uh, produce so much housing within a certain period of time. Like you have to, they demand how many units you got to come up with. You got to come back with a plan. And if your plan doesn't meet their schedule, they can do something called uh, uh, builder's remedy, which forces that the builders can come in and literally do anything they want with no respect to code, the environment things, anything else. And uh, I'm really outraged by this and I'm looking for support on this. And one of the reasons I'm asking is that, do you know if I, I, one of the people that I'm working with uh, on a group called Our Neighborhood Voices, they're trying to put an initiative on the ballot in 2024 here in California to return uh, housing uh, control to the municipalities. And uh, when there's a, a condition where the state has a law and the cities have a law, the state will no longer supersede. So I'm trying to get support, and I was wondering, would you or Max or Jimmy Dore be willing to support having uh, a former mayor of Los Altos come on and talk about this topic? Yeah, listen, uh, this I've been thinking about since I'm out here in California guest hosting for Jimmy that I, I should cover this story, like the housing crisis, because you know, I have a friend who volunteers uh, for a homeless group and does outreach work, and it just sounds – and he was telling me about like the – the developers and how they get around even the the already pretty uh, bare rules for minimum of affordable housing units. And so I'd love to cover this topic. So um, so who would you recommend that I interview? Uh, her name is uh, Anita Enander. She's a former mayor of Los Altos. It's A-N-I-T-A-E-N-A-N-D-E-R. And what you have to visualize when you think of this and how I got exposed to this was they are they will literally put up a six story apartment building, 260 units up against a ranch style home right up against their fence. So you'll have people looking down in your backyard. And I went to a developer meeting, the first public meeting for this one, this couple blocks from my house. And for 260 units, they're only allowing they're only providing 130 parking spaces in an area where 85% of the people drive to work. So imagine, and this is, this is like the third one that's gone up within six blocks of where I live. 
So I, if, if you see these big monstrosities going up, like everybody else that I know, they said they've seen them, but they haven't thought anything of it. They're just an eyesore. When you explain to them what's happening and how this, the, the capital of California has been purchased by the building industry, you begin to get an idea of what's happening. And it's actually kind of frightening because most people think that these states and localities aren't really controlled by the typical things you think of, like the, uh, the defense industry or big farm or something like that. But real estate and construction literally owns local and state governments here in California. But anyway, go ahead. Well, David, thanks for the idea, and uh, I'll, I'll check out your suggestion. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. All right. Hey, Aaron, can you hear me? Yes. Well, it's uh, been probably a bit more than a month since I've last chatted with you. Sorry, I've been kind of buried under exams. Um. I mean, it's not related to the topic. I just want to personally thank you for uh, somebody who has family in Syria for your work at the UN Security Council. And uh, I love how the British ambassador always leaves or makes it a point not to stay whenever you talk. Because <laughs> the last time I think and I'm positive you must have seen your video of when you were saying the first time how all he did was say, check your tw- check his Twitter. And you're like, anything specific you want to you want to point out to? And I uh, appreciate you challenging Rokana. Although I was surprised to like see how bad of an answer he gave when you were talking about sanctions. And he said, well, there's medical exemptions. And you're like, yes, but the economy has been completely decimated. So whether or not that's medical approvals, you know, or the humanitarian aid goes through, you're still not addressing the fact that these sanctions have just decimated the economy. Of course, I know you had to keep moving on because you didn't want to hammer him. But so I just want to say thanks. I haven't chatted with you in a month. So, well, thanks, Sam. Yeah. And um you know, I was disappointed in Rokana's answer, but I, at least I appreciate his willingness to come on and face questions about supporting murderous sanctions, whereas other Democrats don't ever face questions about it. So at least he was, I mean, he was probably aware that he would face questions like that. And I appreciate that he was willing to do it. I just, his answer to me was disappointing, to put it mildly. And yeah, the UN Security Council thing, um, you know, look, on, on the Duma story, it's such an blatant cover-up that the facts are just so overwhelming and that's why they've worked so hard to silence voices that talk about it and the media has done such a good job ignoring it but you know when i get the rare opportunities to speak on you know a forum like that i um i really appreciate it and uh and yeah as you saw the british ambassador had no response he uh, he, he accused me of spreading you know false claims but didn't cite any examples and then left the room you know before i could correct his false claims so that was that was a um that was an important development, and it was also cool. I don't know if you saw this, but at the meeting, Brazil came out in support yeah. of accountability for the OPCW cover-up, which was a new development, and that was, I, I think, very important. And uh, well, that worries that. me, though. That worries me because between that and them and working with China, yeah. uh, I will bet I was like, oh, okay. I was on the phone with my friend, and he was like, you see the story? I'm like, yeah. I'm just waiting for the Post or the Times to talk about the the evil Brazilian regime that needs to be overthrown. And he's like, you think so? I'm like, I mean, last time Bolivia was, I think it was Bolivia that had stood up and said, yeah, I think there has to be a proper investigation. And about a year later, we're talking, oh, hey, there's a coup with a woman holding a giant Bible that needs to go into, you know, the presidential office. Yeah. And, you know, and what you feared has come true because in the Washington Post and I think in the New York Times, too, there's been articles about how Lula is, you know, we thought he could be a reliable ally, but he's not. He's disappointed. <laughs> Called he, it. The godfather in the White House, basically. It's basically, you know, he, he's being sent a warning because he actually advocates diplomacy in Ukraine. So, you know, we had all these high hopes for him, but he's disappointed us with his call for negotiations. It's, it's just, it's classic 
empire behavior. Well, we have the uh, the guy to replace him in Miami with all the other um, puppets we had in South America, all all waiting in Miami till they can go back and get their turn again. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> take care. All right. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam, for call. And good luck with exams. Um, all right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I really appreciate you spending some time. We'll then next time. And uh, take care. Bye, everybody.